contracts, salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Hey, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. It's brought to you by Bet Online. NFL, college football, now the McGregor UFC fights. The best time of year in sports, so don't miss out. Get all the action with every wager, line, prop bet, and more. BetOnline.ag. Take full advantage of the best bonuses in the business from BetOnline. Use the promo code PODCAST1. That's all caps, P-O-D-C-A-S-T-O-N-E. You receive a 50% sign-up bonus today. BetOnline.ag, your online sportsbook experts. This Business of Sports episode is from my class. I teach at Villanova Law, and we had quite an... A guest this week, Christopher Seeger, an attorney that was the lead attorney for the NFL concussion settlement, global settlement that includes 20,000 plus retired players. Chris sat down with my class. I recorded it. It is a quite interesting lecture talking about how he got involved with the case and how the case goes. So without further ado, on the Business of Sports podcast, Chris Seeger, the lead attorney for the global NFL concussion settlement for the players. I'm going to sort of give you an open canvas to really talk about how you got involved with the NFL concussion settlement and what motivated you through a long process, and we'll get to the actual settlement, but what kept you going in dealing with these players that were suffering considerably and their estates and their families? So, so the case didn't come to me by any... Uh, if you, got, can you, you can you hear me in the back? Yeah. By any unusual route. You know, many of my cases get started because... You know, and this is very typical. A lawyer somewhere has a client that got injured by something, and he can't handle the case because he doesn't want to take on Pfizer, Merck, or the NFL, or a big company like that because he may not have the resources. So they'll refer you know those people to our firm to look into the look into the case. That's how the NFL case came to me. It was somebody who had referred a number of cases to my law firm over the years. He was friends with a handful of uh, football players. I mean just because, I guess, one of his buddies played in the NFL or something like that. And I'm not going to mention names because you know, I, don't want to, I, don't know, I don't know who knows who and I don't want to call anybody out. But um, So I, I was referred a handful of NFL players back in, it was actually around 2009, 2010, to look into this, this issue. My initial reaction, I will tell you, wasn't, wasn't positive. Not my initial reaction. My initial reaction was... You know, I'm a guy, I mentioned some of you who are sitting here and for the new people, so I, I spent about seven or eight years as an amateur boxer. I hung around boxing gyms, and I saw older fighters who had been hit in the head a lot, and I just did it at the amateur level. Well, I'm talking about guys that did it at the amateur level and went on to become pros and spent many years. And, you know, brain trauma from boxing was well known for many, many, many years. In fact, if you keep doing a research of the medical literature, there are published studies going back to the 1920s. Um, and so it didn't surprise me initially that they were very big athletic guys using their head as a weapon that would wind up with some kind of uh, brain trauma. What, what did surprise me, though, is, are a few things about the case, which started to really pique my interest and caused me to, you know, I mean, the first cases really got filed somewhere around 2011, 2012. We didn't file until that time frame because we spent a lot of time actually researching and looking into the case which is what we try to do with all our cases if there's the time to do that. And I felt there was the time to do that. But there was one thing that really jumped out at me right away about the NFL case, and that was the conduct of the NFL. So we, you didn't have to spend a lot of time doing research to find out that in the uh, 
in the uh, 1900, uh, in somewhere in the 90s, the NFL formed a committee called the Mild Traumatic Brain Injury Committee. That in and of itself didn't pique my interest that much, but it was enough to say, well, they think this is obviously important enough to study. And then when I looked to see what the committee did and what they, what the doctors associated with that committee, what their backgrounds were, rheumatologists. Rheumatologist is an arthritis doctor. Not one neurologist, not one neuropsychologist, nobody with a real uh, background for brain injuries was involved with that committee. And the studies that they published were actually contrary to what was being said by legitimate doctors who studied brain injuries. Some of the things that were becoming popular, at least at least when I was around, again, around 2010, was you know, the idea that a concussion, now we know from boxing a guy gets knocked, you know, gets knocked out or, but they spend, boxers spend, you know, rounds and rounds and rounds sparring in the gym live for a boxing match and then, you know, it's a pretty violent sport. But, you know, there started to, some medical literature was starting to be published, not at a big level, wasn't being published at the New England Journal of Medicine or anything like that, but, but that's talked about sub-concussions and repetitive hits. So you didn't have to be knocked out, you didn't have to be counted out. But you could have your bell rung, which is something that's probably happened to almost everybody in this room at some point in their life. You know, you get that, you know, you're a little dazed by a shot in the head. Um, so we started looking into it, and we start, we looked at their things, and it was like just red flags going up all over the place. Like, why, why would you publish studies that, I mean, if you read some of the studies that were published by the NFL doctors on this committee, you would actually think concussions were, like, healthy for you. Like, maybe you want to take your kid and bounce them off a wall. I mean, it was, it was that, almost that big of a joke, the way they downplayed so, so it was just against common sense, like anything that I, I knew about head trauma. There's always some kind of thing. Um, and then, as word got out that we were looking at these cases, more and more players came to us, and there were just too many. Again, the boxers I had, I had known in my life growing up as an amateur boxer, they were in their 60s or 70s or 80s. It was obvious the, the effects of all the punches took hold. Um, maybe some a little younger, but I'm start, starting to see that in some of the other NFL players. As I was getting myself sort of networked in and being introduced to people that were complaining of problems, so I started to see, you know, younger players uh, experiencing neurocognitive problems, signs of dementia, which you don't see in 50-year-olds really, or 55-year-olds. Once you get to 65, the, the, the background rate of adults who begin to suffer from dementia-like symptoms really goes up. But under 65, which is relevant when I start talking about the settlement program and the way it was structured, under 65, it's highly unusual. Uh, and so the reports were just coming in. And then I was talking to other lawyers, and you know, eventually we, we filed the cases because we thought there was enough there. But we were, we were not, look, I, I, I'm going to be really candid with you. I know this is being recorded. This has been said in open court. Even sitting here today, it's not like there's a clear study. The one study that hasn't been done, that really needs to be done, and I don't think any of us should expect the NFL to do it, so it's going to be the NIH or the, you know, some government-funded program or some scientists that have the wherewithal to do it. Is There are studies by Ann McKee and others where they have looked at the brains of uh, player, people who played contact sports, mostly football, and have found CTE in the vast majority, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, it's a, which is a protein deposited on the brain, and it's believed that it gets there from damage to the brain. You know, this protein gets in the brain and it begins to interfere with neurological functions and leads to some serious diseases. And I'll come back to that later, too. But, you know, so that, that, was, uh, that study has been done to look at the brains of NFL, retired NFL players. The study that hasn't been done is to, to compare the brain of somebody who's passed away 
<laughs> thankfully, you don't want to take the brain out while they're alive. But somebody who's passed away who has played a contact sport versus people who never played a contact sport in their life. And if you think about it, the, the comparative study you need to do is brains of people with contact sports, brains of people who have. Now, if you start finding a lot of CTE in the brains of people who've never played a contact sport in their life, then you have to, that's got to be looked into. If you're only finding it in the brains of retired NFL players, boxers, hockey players, or whatever, that says something else to the science, and that study just hasn't been done. So the studies that are out there are good, they're reliable, but they go in different directions. So every study that I could come to you, again, remember, this is a litigation that we're talking about. So ultimately, you've got to have science that's going to get past the judge and go to a jury. So, you, you know, there wasn't, there's not a lot out there. The studies that are out there are not very robust. Uh, the ones that were peer-reviewed and published are inconclusive. Um, again, there's enough smoke to know when you read this stuff and you live in it that there's a problem. I've spoken to enough high-level experts that were consulting with us that totally believed there was a problem, but the science had not caught up to where the case was. And that's really not that unusual in the law where the case gets out ahead of the science. And you have to kind of deal with what you have at that time. So what we have at this time is this when it, when it comes to concussions in the NFL case. Pretty convinced there's something called CTE. We think it is related only to people who, you know, it's related to concussions and subconcussive hits for people who play contact sports. Um, not, not completely conclusive and sure what the causative role is there. Are there other factors that could be at play? Are there things, you know, other comorbidities, you know, being overweight, uh, you know, um, drug use? We, there are a lot of questions that are, are open about it. And there was a really good chance that if the case hadn't settled, I mean, and I'll talk about this, there was a big motion that could have dismissed many of the cases right up front involving preemption, which was a motion to dismiss the cases from the tort system, take it out of the legal system, and send them into arbitration. We can probably talk about that in a second. But the big question would have been, even if we survived all that, were these cases triable? And the thing that made these cases very difficult was up until, you know, we knew about the, up until people became generally aware, and I have to give credit to the Feyneroo brothers and some of the, the reporting, a lot of good journalism starts really big lawsuits. And this was definitely a case, in my view, where the, where the, the media... And the journalists who were looking into this were way out ahead of everybody and asking really important questions that led to people like me, lawyers, doing some research, looking into it, and filing a case. But, um, you know, there, there was a big question about how many of these cases would be tried. So there's 22,000 retired players that are involved in this settlement. 5,000 of them filed individual lawsuits. Many of those players played in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. So automatically, you guys haven't been to law school that long, but you see a statute of limitations problem, right? I mean, there's a limited amount of time that you can bring a claim. Even in states where they say you had to know what caused your injury or should have known, it could have been a problem uh, with, with the statute of limitations for a player who retired in 1975. On top of that, up until people generally became aware of this problem in the NFL, Nobody, there really were no records. I mean, there were virtually very few records of concussions that occurred in practices because nobody in the 80s and 90s and 2000s and early 2000s, the trainers were not really stuff. Right, right or wrong, just wasn't a record of it. It's like we all know players get concussed. 
but a lot of it was happening in practices, and I don't know if any of you guys have heard this stuff, but some of these teams used to have some really hard practices. You're aware of the famous stories about the Chicago Bears and how hard the practices were harder than the games. And more players were hurt in practice or knocked out in practice than in the game. And then you had players that only practiced and never played in the game. Um, and then, you know, you didn't have a highlight reel of everything that happened. You didn't have a medical record proving you were concussed. You would need a doctor to say that that concussion or those concussions in the NFL caused your problem as opposed to the four years you played in college, years you played in high school and middle school, and pop water football. So you're starting to see that there are causation issues in the case, all over the case, which doesn't mean that we lost heart. We didn't. I mean, we were... Look, this ultimately is going to result in about a billion and a half dollars going to people who need it the most. The retired NFL football players that are suffering the consequences of their years in the NFL. But um, there was only going to be one way that 22,000 retired players were going to get to some kind of a benefit, whether it was testing or compensation, and that was going to be through a global settlement. Because if we had gone the route of litigating all these cases, some would have won, but many would have lost. And many wouldn't have even seen the corporate. So that's what, what we were dealing with. And the, the basis of the suit, they've read the master complaint. Things like fraud, concealment, misrepresentation. You mentioned the fan or the people who've seen League of Denial, people who've seen the movie Concussion. That's the era we're talking about. So your, your basic premise was the NFL knew about the science, ignored it, mm -hmm. and, and should have told the players. Yeah. Because obviously you know you're going into a game, you're going to get hurt. It's physical. It's contact. But you're saying they didn't know the future risk brain trauma, and that was concealed and fraudulently held from them. And covered up. I mean, they went as far as, like I said, publishing studies that purported to be medical literature. This is very tobacco-esque in that respect. Yeah. This is what the tobacco companies did. They got doctors to publish studies early on. They got doctors to publish studies saying smoking's not bad for you. When the Surgeon General came out and said... There are these many, you know, people, the incident rates among smokers versus they published their own studies saying that's BS. Well, the NFL was going down the same path. I mean, that's, that's what we saw. It was a cover-up, and there's no, nothing short of it. So we did have claims of fraud and fraudulent concealment. I mean, the, again, the complicating factor was that the real sweet spot in the case were the 90s to the early 2000s, and there were players that played before that time and after. So, again, I, I bring this point to you because... I think of myself, as a lawyer, I think of myself, and I make this analogy all the time, is that I'm, I'm at times in the War Department, and at times I'm in the State Department. I have no problem trying cases against any defendant, and I've tried a number of them. But when you switch over to the State Department, you're looking for a solution, and the solution has to be, has to benefit everyone in some respects. So in the NFL litigation, that's, I mean, I don't know if you want to go into the talking about the settlement at this point, but that appeared to be the best, not appeared to be, it was without question the best route to go, which was a negotiated resolution that would solve, in some respects, the problems the NFL had by, by making them pay a lot of money and taking care of these players. And it would allow players who probably had a weak case that would never get to a jury or if it got to a jury couldn't win, still receive compensation and benefits under the settlement. So you engage in settlement talks with NFL owners? Is that who is doing the settlement, or their lawyers, or how does that work? Yeah, so we talk, I mean, it's, it's very rare, as folks may know, for lawyers to talk directly to clients. So we spoke to the attorneys, Brad Karp from Paul Weiss, who is an outstanding defense lawyer, represents Citibank and a lot of big corporations, and a very good lawyer and very honorable. Um, 
was representing the NFL. So most of my negotiations was with Brad and his team, and he was with me, and for him, with me and my team. Behind Brad, though, we were very much aware that there was an owner's negotiating committee, and we knew who was on the owner's negotiating committee. It was, it was clear that they were um, heavily overseeing what was going on in that negotiating room. In fact, at one point, there was a mediator appointed by the name of a former judge by the name of Lane Phillips, who did actually go many times and go meet with the negotiating committee, and I believe had at least one meeting with Roger Goodell directly. So in trying to help mediate the resolution of this case, which you know, for, a, for a, couple, a few months was really night and day and pretty much around the clock. And when you're negotiating this settlement, you're representing the interests of thousands of players and I suppose hundreds of lawyers. Yes. How is that all yeah. swelled up to you to then represent in, in, to the league all these competing interests? I'm sure you had lawyers that did not want to settle, didn't like your settlement, didn't like what you're doing, got to get CTE in there, everything. Deal with that. I mean, that's that's one of the most difficult things about leading a case. I mean, it really is multi-dimensional chess because you're not just you know when you're doing when you're leading these big complex litigations on the plaintiff or the defense side, you're not only dealing with the problem in front of you, but you are dealing with so you know there is a judge in the in Philadelphia by the name of Anita Brody who appointed lawyers to lead the case. I, together with a Villanova alum, Saul Weiss, were co-lead counsel in the in the litigation. So we basically had a representative government. There were hundreds of law firms out there representing thousands of NFL players. So we, so that that's always in the backdrop. And so you have to deal with them and their concerns. You have to deal with the problem in front of you, which is the NFL and their negotiators. And then you got other things going on, legal issues going on. So you have to you have to do it. But I I, I would never support a settlement in any case unless I believed 100% in my heart and soul that I got the last nickel I could get and I got the best deal I could get. Once I get to that point in my head, I don't care what the problems are. I'm pretty much convinced at that point that whatever the problems that are bubbling to the top and whatever's motivating those problems are gonna go away when people study the deal and realize and really think about the issues and they realize that this is the best way to go. And I've, I've been confronted with that situation in Vioxx, which was almost a $5 billion settlement where a handful of lawyers from throughout the country, you know, for mostly for reasons that would have benefited them personally, not necessarily their clients, you know, you got to you got to at some point look at the deal and say, can I really turn? At the end of the day, I'd like to get a little more money for my fees, but can I can I turn down this deal for my clients? And I try to negotiate these deals to the point where, when the lawyer asks himself that question, even though he's not involved, he has to say, I got to take the deal. Just ethically, it's a good deal for my clients. So. So talk about the settlement, and you've dealt with a lot of class actions, and there's sort of grids of what's payable, how much commensable. Mm-hmm. So it seems to be sort of if you've had these kind of injuries for this playing this long at this age, then it goes into a grid or formula. Yes. You could talk about that for a minute. Yeah, so we did. We do have what's been referred to as a grid or a matrix, and what it is, it's a chart that basically told any NFL play, any retired NFL player that wanted to see what he would get out of the settlement that if they had a certain condition, or if their loved ones were looking at it, their wife or their kids, if they had a certain condition, based upon their age and the years played in the NFL, they could see how much money they were going to get. So, for example, if a player came down with ALS, by the way, just let me drop a footnote there. In this settlement, no player has to prove that they had a concussion or that any concussion or concussions in the NFL caused their problem. The NFL was prepared, and we got them to waive those requirements, which if you think about it, is a pretty big deal. 
um, to waive causation. Why would they do that? I can talk about that in a second. I mean, the bottom line is really quickly, they wanted global peace. The only way they were going to get global peace, meaning they weren't going to die a death of a thousand cuts, you know, where they have to try thousands, win, lose, or draw, I got to try thousands of cases, was to do it all in one vehicle. And the vehicle was under, I don't know how many of you have taken, I guess you all have taken civil procedure at this point. Have you studied Rule 23, the class action rule that allows you to certify a class action with similar claims and facts? Well, that is a great tool and a device, but it is, um, it has really been not used that much for reasons I'm not going to get into in this class because it's complicated, but there's a Supreme Court case called AMCAM. It made it very difficult to use Rule 23 to settle class actions involving personal injuries on the theory that they're so different. Everybody's injury is so different, it's hard to aggregate them that way. So what we, that actually, the fact that the NFL needed global peace was something that worked to the advantage of players. That enabled me to do a couple things, to negotiate a very rich deal with big compensation awards for certain injuries like ALS, dementia, Parkinson's, and um, um, Alzheimer's. So the, if you look, if you have an opportunity to go online and look at the settlement, if there's a player 45 years or younger that develops ALS, no causation requirement, if you're a retired NFL player and you played five years or more, you're going to get $5 million. If you developed dementia at 45 or younger, you're going to get $3.5 million. So these are big, rich awards that can change tax-free, that can change people's lives. The other side of that equation is that I, I mentioned this earlier. If you're 65 or older and you develop dementia, the award goes way down. And that reflects some real-life realities, which is that in the general population, as I mentioned, over 65, the, the, the background rates of dementia shoot up. But in this case, I mean, the awards are not that big, but you still, you still get an award. And, and the theory is that if you're 45 or 50 or 55 and you've developed one of these things, that's really rare. I mean, we went to, this, we went to this, the Center for Disease Control website. We hired economists. We hired the best actuaries that we could get. And we modeled these things out by collecting all the public data and not just public data, but we did have some things from the NFL. The Michigan study that they had done, which showed, which had a really surprising result from the NFL stand, standpoint. Because although it, the numbers in the Michigan study that they had sponsored and paid for had low rates for Alzheimer's and dementia, the ALS rates jumped off the page. Mm. They were like 19 times higher than the, than the general population, So, which helped us fit ALS into the program. But... Um, but again, so what we tried to do is balance that. But we simplified it. Now, there were other, if this was not settled as a class action, why this is relevant to, to young lawyers, we would have gone a different route, which is what we typically do in the, in the pharmaceutical cases. And there would have been these complicated systems of pluses and minuses. If you smoked, you get a deduction. If you're obese, you get a deduction. If you had heart disease, you get a deduction. Because all of those things are implicated in neurological problems down the road. We were able to get rid of all that because we had to really keep it very simple in order for the case to be certified as a class action by Judge Brody. It was appealed. It went through the Third Circuit. They upheld it, and then it went up to the Supreme Court, and cert was denied. So it's now a finals up. But we, 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 the architecture of the deal was such that we had to simplify it so that would happen. Again, why, why I say that worked to the benefit of the players is if you began to grid this out in the way you would in a pharmaceutical case with all those pluses and minuses, Many players smoked, some did legal drugs, but some legal drugs are implicated, some did illicit drugs. 
Some were morbidly obese. All of those things would have been used to reduce the amounts that the players would have ultimately received. And again, in exchange for global peace, because settlements are a give and take, we were able to do better for the players, get them more money, and eliminate those kinds of We'll get back to Chris Seeger, the lead attorney for the players in the NFL concussion settlement. First, a word from Lightstream. Have you looked at your credit card? Been shocked by the interest rate? Lightstream. You can roll all your credit card debt into one monthly payment at a lower fixed interest rate. Lightstream offers credit card consolidation from 5.89% APR with AutoPay. It's lower than the average credit card interest rate, which is over 18% APR. So you can get a loan $5,000, even to $100,000. You can even get your funds as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream believes people with good credit deserve a great interest rate. My listeners, get a special discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. The only way to get the discount, go to lightstream.com slash bizofsports. Spell out the name, B-I-Z-O-F-S-P-O-R-T-S, all caps, lightstream.com slash bizofsports. Subject to credit approval, rates include 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply, offers subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash bizofsports for more information. Back to Chris Seeger. You talked about some of the compensable diseases, ALS, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. You mentioned it briefly earlier. One non-compensable disease is CTE, and that's getting a lot of attention. A lot of NFL players, former NFL players, found to have CTE in their brains upon upon dying a study at a Boston University. So the critics coming to you about, hey, it's not CTE, how do you respond to them? So that's I, so my response, I'll give it to you here the way I've been saying it over the years. It's it's not true. Here Here's the reason why. And I, I think you guys are going to see this, but you know, people who were objecting to the settlement refused to accept this. We did not include CTE in the settlement. We do have CTE in the settlement. For any player that died prior to the approval of the settlement and had a pathology report showing they had CTE, they get compensated. But there is no test in the settlement for somebody with CTE or who dies later with CTE. And there's a reason for that. One is it wouldn't do any good to, to the living, for the living players because you cannot test for CTE in a living player. They have to take a piece of your brain to do that, and you have to be dead. So that was a problem. The second, but what we did as a proxy for that is we compensated all of the injury, all of the serious diseases that were supported in the medical literature and associated with CTE. So ALS, there's support in the medical literature. Alzheimer's, dementia, and Parkinson's, there's, some, there's support in the medical literature for that. And that's, so we, so we just presumed for the purposes of the settlement that if you had one of those injuries, those diseases, and you were a retired NFL player, we presumed you had CTE. So the, so the CTE test, you know, was not necessary. Now, the one category from the settlement that some argued was missing was that what if, what if a player didn't have any of those diseases, lived a relatively normal life? I, people could take issue with that because, you know, you could say, well, it wasn't really a normal life. He was suffering from depression or anxiety or anger. Just, let's put that aside for a second. But he lived a relatively normal life, had no none of those diseases that were being compensated, and then dies and you find out he has CTE. Well, one argument is, well, you didn't develop the diseases associated with CTE, so why would you get compensation for that? And the second, the second thing is that we didn't, and this was a problem, we actually asked for this in the settlement and we lost. One of the reasons is because there was a concern that if we compensated death with CTE after the date the settlement was approved, that players may go out and commit suicide 
because to take care of their families and try to get them an award. And the one thing, you, I mean, there's a moral issue about whether you want to incentivize somebody to hurt themselves so they can get an award to take care of their family. And that's not just speculation, because we were, we were closely monitoring chat boards and we were talking with bloggers, and some players were saying things like that. I'll just shoot my, you know what, if they don't include me in this settlement, I'll shoot myself in the chest and my family can get a check for a few million dollars. It just, there was just no way to get that done. You know, when I first met you, you were with Kevin Turner, yeah. uh, former Philadelphia Eagle, actually, who uh, suffered from ALS and has unfortunately passed away. Uh, you probably saw a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, serious disease, serious debilitation, and, and on wives and estates that had dealt with loss. Uh, hard to separate that, you know, the emotional side with yeah. this lawsuit? It's always hard for me. I mean, you do this kind of work. That's one of the things that, um, I mean, it's not the same as being a doctor and losing a patient, but you become attached to your clients. So Kevin Turner was very much the face of this case. I mean, if there was one person that people associated with this case, it was Kevin. And when we started this out, Kevin, I'm not going to say Kevin was fine. He was obviously exhibiting the effects of, the, of ALS, but he declined so quickly. It was really, it was really tragic. And, uh, you know, left behind two kids. He was really never, I mean, if, if you want to talk about the perfect client for a lawyer, he never asked about what was in it for him. Although he was advised as we were negotiating, he and Sean wouldn't. We had kept them in the loop because they were our representatives of the, of the players, and we were getting advice from them. It, I mean, I never, it, we were just so fortunate to have two class reps like this because Sean is not exhibiting any injury, any problems at this point. Remember from the settlement, I don't know if you're familiar with it, there are two subclasses. One is players who are currently diagnosed with a, one of those serious diseases, and the other ones are not yet diagnosed with that serious, but are subject to having a problem down the road. So remember, it's a 65-year program. Um, and, you know, Kevin just never asked what was in it for him. Never focused on him. Always focused on his... I mean, it really is like... They really do have a camaraderie amongst NFL players. I, look, I'm not going to say they're the easiest group to deal with, and I'm not going to even lie to you. I didn't even like many of them at times because they were just so so difficult. And I don't mean that in a, in a really bad way. I'm saying it in a kind of in a joking way. But, you know, I've had my share of being in front of a room, being screamed at, and, you know. Um, but, but there's a bond amongst those guys that you probably would only see, like, in the military it is, it is the equivalent of that. If anyone's from a military family or served time in the military, these guys, it is like a band of brothers. They see themselves as guys that have gone to war together. That's exactly what the mindset is. And you have to respect that and you have to understand that, especially those of you here who may one day want to wind up representing them. You can't, don't downplay that or underestimate the power of that. And, you know, one thing I did, because you mentioned the wives and families, is it, on a... You know, a bi-weekly basis, I had a phone call that started with a handful of wives. And the problem there was, and I wanted to hear from them, because the people who were taking care of these sick, really sick players were the wives of the Steve Smiths of the world um, and, and others who were really, I mean, it was, the, it was the wives and the family that were bearing the brunt of the dementia and the Parkinson's and the Alzheimer's because they they're not leaving these guys, they're taking care of them. They're, they're you know, continuing to show them love and caring. So I started to have a phone call, you know, with just a handful of wives and children and NFL players, and that built up to a much larger call, and we would do it on a regular basis. So I really got to, you know, learn the impact on the families of, of what was going on. So again, the, the nuts and bolts, just for people who don't know, first number was out there, $765 million across all the players for 60-something years. 
Then the that was with a cap, and then back to the judge. Judge says no cap. So then it becomes an uncapped settlement, uh, which is what we have, correct? That, that's correct. So that's worth spending a little time on uh, from a couple of perspectives. One is, I did mention to you what our great, that we had the greatest experts, uh, economists and actuaries, and we did have a number. We thought it was difficult getting money out of the NFL, and we felt that we had initially gone as far as we possibly could with them. Again, round-the-clock negotiations. So we initially settled the case. I don't remember. It was, I think it was $765 million. Do I have it on my cheat, cheat sheet here? No. So $765 million. Um, and now, so you're, if you were paying attention, you're probably sitting there going, oh, wait a second, you just said it's going to be over a billion. What happened was when we first presented the case to, to Judge Brody, and again, I went as far as I could. So you don't, you know, it's, you don't just reject a $765 million offer. You push it as far as you can. That's as good as we could. We believe, based on our models and our assumptions of how many players would come down with these diseases, and that money being invested over a 65-year period of time, it was very complicated. Well, we believed we had enough. We knew that 765 million would turn into about a billion over time uh, if it was invested properly. Now. When Judge Brody got the settlement initially, she rejected it, and her big concern at the time was, what if you're wrong? I mean, if you're wrong and there were more players out there that you don't know about, I mean, you only had 5,000 filed cases, there were 22,000 retired players, we need to be really sure that there's going to be enough money for everybody. Um, go back to the drawing board. She, she rejected the first settlement, which led us back to the negotiating table with a new special master who had a, somebody Judge Brody had appointed, <coughs> a, uh, was a former Colbert Kravis partner. I don't know if you know who Colbert Kravis is, but they're one of those big... The powerhouse Wall Street investment banking firms. So this guy had that kind of a background. Um, and we negotiated for another five or six months and ultimately were able to convince the NFL to uncap the deal. It was never going to be approved by her cap. So we were able to use that to the advantage of the players and uncap the deal. The trade-off there was because the deal is now uncapped, and again, if the parties got something wrong, it was a lot more expensive. The NFL now is incentivized to, to fight in the settlement process. And they, they were the only way to get the deal uncapped was to build provisions that allowed them to appeal claims, and there's some protections for the players, and, um, and, be, uh, and to be more involved. They built in anti-fraud provisions and things like that that were designed to catch truly fraudulent claims. And we should probably talk about that before my time is up, because that, that is actually an issue that's been in the press and you might have read about. There are, there are some fraudulent claims coming in. Um, but so after five or six months of negotiating, we represented the deal as an uncapped settlement. And it does look like today that the numbers are going to be a little off and that there'll be more claims than we had anticipated. And it, the number is likely to be over a billion dollars. And did I read as we sit here today, uh, half a billion dollars has been paid out? So something like that. Uh, oh, about $560 million has been approved for payment. Approved for payment. Almost $400 million is out the door already. Now, again, there's a 30-day window where the NFL gets to look at every claim and they get to decide whether they want to appeal. Now, the one thing I'll say about appeals, and I've been criticized by this, why did you give them the right to appeal? Well, first of all, I gave them the right to appeal so we can get the deal uncapped, you know, so, so these claims could get paid. Uh, we also built in a penalty that if they brought frivolous appeals, they would lose their right to an appeal, and I could get sanctions against them. They agreed to that. We have they have appealed a couple dozen claims, and we've beaten them in almost all of them, except for like one. So we have beaten them on all the appeals. 
we have written ourselves, as lead counsel, we wrote ourselves, we gave ourselves standing in the settlement to appeal on behalf of class members, whether they have lawyers or not. So we literally, I have a team of lawyers at my office that literally continue to implement the settlement and track every decision that comes, whether it's a positive or a negative, deciding whether there's an issue to appeal, or if the NFL appeals, we file, we do the briefing on behalf of the, so we haven't subject like a retired NFL player and their family to this big legal hurdle of having to come up with briefs. We do the briefing for them, and we've been very successful. So 45-year-old former player, you know, having trouble remembering where his keys are. Is he entitled? Is he compensable? That in and of itself, probably no. Um, but, well, first of all, we want all of them tested because even if they are asymptomatic 100%, getting that baseline test of a young 25, 30, 35-year-old player could be very important down the road should he develop a problem to have something to compare it to so you can really see the decline. Because one of the problems in diagnosing these problems is they look for a decline in executive function, in intellect, in memory, and to assess that sometimes is very difficult without some kind of baseline test to do it against. So now the program, and we have over 7,000 players already scheduled to take these exams, now they can go get that done. For the player who says, I'm forgetting my keys, I'm a little more forgetful, his wife or his children are saying to him, you're not the same dad, he can go get tested, and if he turns out that he has a neurocognitive problem at the level of early dementia, he can receive compensation. If he's not at the level of early dementia, there are some other benefits, pharmaceutical uh, treatments, some additional consulting that they can get to help them get through it. But the one thing we do know is that these, this disease is, is degenerative. So if you are down the path of developing dementia, you've got those early signs, there's a really good chance you're gonna to continue to develop. I'm not sure that we know exactly how fast that is for everybody, but it will happen. So by getting them in and diagnosing them early, whether they're at the level of, of a compensable injury or not, it's still a positive thing because it's going to get them into medical care and paying attention to it. And either taking treatments that can help hold it off, or if it develops into a problem like dementia or ALS or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, you can reapply. You can reapply to the program as many times as you need to. So you're not, it's not one and out. Yeah. Last question before I open it up is, you know, having done this, what's your view of A, the NFL, and B, football in general? So starting with the NFL, I don't have any, uh, you know, I'm, I have a chip on my shoulder against all the corporate defendants I go after. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just how I'm built. So, you know, do I think they're an evil organization? I mean, they, you know, no. I mean, they are, these guys, they give opportunities to people that can improve their lives through, through playing of sports and make a lot of money. That's a real positive thing. And for many of these players, you know, it's not like there were a lot of other options. I mean, we have to be candid and frank about that. You know, um, some there are, some there, many there aren't. But you know, do do I think the NFL has been exploitive of players and taken advantage of them? I, I do. I do think that. I think my case is evidence of at least one example where that's occurred. Do I want to get into other areas? You would know a lot more about that than I would. But uh, this is one example I think where all they needed to do. See. Let me give you, I'll tell you how stark this is. So people say to me, do I represent players who play today? I don't. I'm only representing retired players. So what if a retired player today wanted to bring this kind of a lawsuit? I think there's a problem. I mean, now notice is really out there. Because I mean, now everyone knows. Oh, everyone knows. If you don't so, know about head injuries, yeah. And that's really all you're around. asking for in the law, whether it's a drug or any kind of risk, is, is to have it warned against. 
then you make an intelligent decision as to whether you want to do it. And same thing for mothers and fathers for their kids. So whether uh, football is going to be around or not, that's going to be based upon probably what was revealed in this case because it's had big social implications, not just in football, but anybody who knows kids that play soccer, you know, they don't want kids in the, in the U.S. now heading soccer balls until I think they're 14 right. or 16 years old. Um, so, you know, some can criticize that or not, but it is what it is. I mean, there, it's a recognition of the fact that there are studies out there that show those young brains are susceptible to problems. And, and you know, letting kids head balls ahead of soccer ball could create a problem down the road. There were also studies in women who played soccer who showed a higher susceptibility to neurocognitive problems later in life playing soccer than men. So this information just has to be out there so people can, uh, can do it. As far as playing football, you know, I told you guys, I, I spent, um, you know, I spent a lot of part of my life, my younger life boxing. I have a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I'm on the mats all the time. I bang my head all the time. I get hit with all. I'm not against contact sports or violent sports at all. I don't have a problem with it. Just want to know what, what I'm getting into when I do it. I would imagine that anybody else would want to know. And some football players, as you all probably know, like Chris Borland and others, who, after assessing, after the, the risk came out, made a decision that it wasn't right for him. And that's that's okay. I think that's okay. And for the others who stay and play, they do it with their eyes open. And that's okay too. So. Questions? Can you go a little bit deeper into what the baseline testing entails? Like, is it just a computer screen that you test your reaction time? Is it a balanced um, testing? It's it's um, way above my pay grade to really describe them, but I will tell you that if you go onto the settlement, there's an exhibit which lays out all the what we tried to do is create for any neuropsychologist in the country anywhere. Um, a Chinese menu of tests that they could do to get to you know, to get a, a, di a diagnosis of somebody's neurocognitive function. It could be something on that menu that they like, that they're comfortable using, they can use that. There could be other tests on there that they could use as well. So it was really a list of acceptable tests and acceptable results needed to get to those injuries. Um, outside of that, you'd be better off, if you've got any background, you'd be better off looking at that yourself. <laughs> Paul played the NFL. Yeah. Oh, did you? Okay. Yeah. When did you retire? Years ago, I guess. Now. So, mm -hmm. class, yeah. So cool. far, making it through law school, so still got enough. You're okay. Yeah, you're okay. You're okay. <laughs> Think a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. well, the good news is it doesn't happen to everybody. So, I mean, that is that is it, there is an element of in, like with drugs, and I told you I do a lot of these pharmaceutical cases. There's an element to all of this of individual susceptibility. State your name and go ahead. I'll let the professor call it. Yeah, uh, my name is uh, Francesco Campisi. I'm a 1-0. So I understand a lot of this case was predicated on like the false reports that the NFL put out, um, but not everyone who played a decent amount of football makes it to the NFL. For example, like NCAA players who play like maybe Division Two who don't make it. Do you find that the NCAA might be facing a similar type of settlement case because they do um, get a lot out of these players? So there are lawsuits against the. I'm not bringing them, but there are. I'm not involved. But there are lawsuits against the NCAA. One was um, settled for a fraction of what the NFL case went for. I mean, it involved probably about 100,000 or so athletes that played college sports, and I think there's a $75 million fund for testing. There's a, another litigation going on that involves personal injuries that relate to you know people who are ex-college players who are suffering from neurocognitive or neuromuscular problems. 
they claim as a result of whatever they paid in college. That's still ongoing. So those cases are, they're out there. Yeah. And what's the status of the NHL case, do you know? Yeah, I mean, so the NHL case, I know they moved, they made a motion before the court to move for class certification, and it was denied. Denied. So they did not. And that's another thing about class actions that you may, if those of you who studied Rule 23, there are different standards for a lit, certifying a litigation class versus a settlement class. Slightly different, and, and it's a very nuanced area and a very exciting area of the law if you guys ever want to go into it on either side, but which is always changing. But on the um, when you settle a when you settle a, a case and you try to use Rule 23 to get a settlement class approved, certain requirements of Rule 23 are waived for settlement purposes that are not waived for litigation purposes. So it is hard. It's not surprising, actually, that they weren't able to get a litigation class certified in the NHL. Yeah, not really know too well. Yeah, um, I'm just curious. Uh, could you circle back to how you got the NFL to waive causation? It was, you know, it was it was not something they did willingly. They didn't want to. But there was just no way that we saw the case could be settled and and deliver what they wanted. They want we needed compensation, and we didn't want to have a requirement where guys had to prove that they were concussed while playing in the NFL. Because as we so we had records for about 2,500 players. Not all of them, and again, remember, you know, it's like not everything happens on television. I mean, they were, these were rough practices. Some of them are taped, some of them are not. Many of the times we found players come to us saying, look, man, I was knocked out in practice you know, eight or nine times, or I had my bell rung a hundred times, and I complained to the trainer, but the trainer didn't make a note of it, and nobody in the team made a note of it. Now, I believe that's changed. I'm told that that has changed, that now the rules governing what goes, well, first of all, the practices I don't think are like what they used to be, at least for most teams, and I understand that there are requirements in place, you know, requiring that these things get recorded. But that wasn't always that wasn't the case. Um, so how we did it really just came down to how bad did the NFL really want the settlement? And they wanted it bad enough that they were allowed that we were able to get rid of that that requirement. I, we could not have settled the case with the requirement, and the reason is because I couldn't have settled the case no matter what number you put on it. If only you know ten people were going to be able, to, or a hundred people were going to be able to claim and make a, and, and and receive compensation. Right now, I mean, we are, we, our early estimates projected that in the first five years, the NFL would spend about, you know, two hundred and something million dollars. Remember, it's a sixty-five year program. We are already at about eighteen months. We are already close to six hundred million dollars. So we're, you know, weighing those. Requirements getting those waived was a really big deal in getting players who really need the help now compensated. So, yeah, we wouldn't have settled if they didn't, but you know, they, they gave up. But we would have called their bluff. Who is actually deciding what player X gets? Player X walks to an, or what, a doctor and yeah. says, I got this, I got this, submits it, someone says you're, you're going to get X thousand dollars. How does it work? Yeah, so there's two, there's a couple things. <coughs> We had a number, at the time the case settled, we had a number of players who had already gone out and received the diagnosis, or that they were aware of this lawsuit and they went out and got diagnosed. We, we were able to um, get all those claims honored. So those are called pre-effective date claims. Up through a certain date, if a player went to their own doctor, got their own diagnosis, those diagnoses are honored in the settlement. After the effective date, which is when the settlement became final, when the Supreme Court refused to take cert, that's when it became final. After the effective date, they now have to go to either a BAP doctor or a monetary fund, a monetary, 
monetary award fund doctor. So we've created for this case our own captive-like HMO network of doctors throughout the country that are within 25 miles of every retired player that they could go to and either get a test for the baseline assessment or if they believe they've progressed to the point where they have a, they can get a monetary award, they can go to a, a doctor who's been approved by the NFL and the, the players, the representatives. So. Hmm. Yes. Uh, Chris Blood, I'm one out. Um, I was a little more curious about like what like protections do the players have under these settlement the appeals that you were talking about? Like what more in depth information is there about that? Oh, when you say protection for appeals, I mean what do you what do you mean? But you were talking about like um, the NFL has the ability to like appeal the yeah. claims that the players make, but like you also mentioned that they have protections against those. Like what are those? I think the best protection they have is us. Because if, uh, and, uh, so the NFL has appealed, I, I can't, let me see if I have the numbers here, on how many appeals they They have taken a number of appeals, and as I said, we've beaten them on almost every single one, except for one or two, and on some big issues, and I could go into those if we have time, but just to answer your question, we have written ourselves as lawyers into the deal, so we, we literally do the briefing. Now, if they have their own lawyer, their lawyer can do the briefing, too, to protect that player's award from an NFL appeal, but we also can weigh in. Even if they have a lawyer, we can still submit our own brief. And the reason we wanted that is because I negotiated the deal. My, and my people in my firm know the deal cold. And I didn't want somebody who's new to the deal and didn't understand some of the nuanced provisions. Because in a settlement, there are always nuanced provisions because it's a give and take. I didn't want somebody else to be, you know, come in cold and not really understand what was the purpose of, of a certain provision that we put in. I'll give you an example. One, one, one appeal the NFL loves taking and they finally have stopped is on pre-effective date diagnoses, um, there's a requirement that you can, we can, they'll, we'll honor a pre-effective date diagnosis from an outside doctor, but it's got to be generally consistent with the program set up in the BAP or the MAF. And that just simply means you can't have some crazy testing regimen you did. It has to be kind of generally recognized. And if it's reasonable, we'll accept it. The NFL took the position in appeals that it had to be identical to what we set up in the uh, BAP program. And that was not what Identify BAP? Uh, baseline assessment program. Okay. So they, they took the position that some doctor had, he, although he's diagnosing dementia, he didn't use the, te- he didn't use the same tests that we require in the, BA- in the baseline assessment program. And our position is, yeah, that's why we negotiated language like it had to be generally consistent didn't have to be identical. And the court has ruled our way on all of those and has honored those diagnoses. So, I mean, we knew once the deal became, we had to, you got to be realistic. Once the deal became uncapped, now they really had to fight to keep, you know, as much of their money in their pockets as they could. We were prepared for that. And that's why we, you know, we were involved in these appeals. But, I mean, like I said, the good news is we're winning. So. Paul. So you might have answered this in the beginning. Um, how do you respond to the argument that the players accepted the risk, that they knew what they were doing, and this is relatively new information that's come out? How can the NFL be liable for not protecting their players against this harm that they didn't even know could be caused? And lastly, how do you, the rules that the NFL are now passing now satisfies whatever obligation they have? Like, is, or is the NFL going to be liable for this stuff forever? At what point do they have they done enough? Yeah, that's a good question. So Paul is getting at what I started talking about, which were some of the risks of litigating. There were a number. I might as well, let me identify a few. So the, 
assumption of risk is a, was a major problem that could have been a major problem in the case. You know, the impression is that every, you know, that the fans out there were highly supportive of this. But if you really, like I said, track some of the chat rooms and what was going on and what fans were saying after ESPN articles, if you read some of those comments, many of them were making comments like that. These guys knew it. They made millions. Fans think every player makes millions of dollars. And they knew what they were getting into when they played football. Remember, though, that wasn't, our, that wasn't the point for us, that they knew it was a violent sport. Every NFL player signed on, I guarantee you, expected to have knee problems, back problems, neck problems. I don't think prior to this lawsuit and the great journalism that was done by the people that were covering this and the brain injury, the concussion, I don't think many, I, I, forget about it, I don't think. There are no NFL players that went into this prior to 2012 when the stories broke that understood Fully that if they played football, they may come out of it with dementia, ALS, Parkinson's, or Alzheimer's. That was not an injury they bargained for. That's the whole point of notice. And that's why current players, I think, Paul, have a big problem if they, I mean, in my view, would have a big problem if they brought the case because there's so much information out there about this case right now. It's been so widely covered. It's on the front page of the New York Times and most, I mean, USA Today, I mean, they have covered this settlement. So it's going to be, you'd have to be living under a rock to have not followed what's happened with the concussion settlement, particularly if you're a guy who played football in college and you want to go to the NFL. So I think that assumption of risk for that player is a big problem. There are other problems, though, too. Preemption was an issue. We talked about that. The NFL was already gunning up a motion to um, kick all these cases into a workers' comp program because their claim was the NFL is just a trade organization. You shouldn't be suing us. You should be suing the teams. But if you sue the teams, you wind up in a workers' comp, because that's your employer, and those are the schemes that are set up in various states. You wind up in a workers' comp claim, and that's not going to pay you anywhere near what the settlement paid. And the motion they were going to make was to have the NFL deemed a co-employer with the teams. If that were ruled on in their favor, that would have wiped out basically these claims as well. And then, you know, I talked to you before about Daubert rulings, and Daubert is a motion that's made to, to exclude science, certain science, certain science that isn't reliable from a jury getting it, and some of the science that supported CTE and these injuries might have been excluded. So there are a number of litigation risks. And quickly, there are players that have opted out yeah. and still suing. Yeah. I think Junior Seau may be the most well-known. Yeah. Definitely the most famous of the opt-outs. Look, so, so the good news is for this settlement, that so the way class actions work, if you remember from your your so pro, everybody's in unless they take themselves out. This case had a very low rate of opt-outs. It was less than I mean it was 21, 22,000 retired players, and two hundred had initially opted out. But by the time we got to you know the Third Circuit, many of them had already opted back in. So it was a little over a hundred that opted out that are continuing lawsuit. Junior Seo is one of them. Uh, and, and, and others. And then because I represent the class and I don't represent opt-outs, I'm not up on what's going on with the opt-outs, uh, but they do have the right to continue to go forward, which also means that at some point Judge Brody has to rule on that preemption notion. And if they win, they're, they can move forward, and if they don't, they're going to be out. And I will put a little footnote there. In the night, There is a case that's going on against the NFL right now accusing the NFL of pushing drugs in the locker room. Um, you know, initially when I filed my first complaint, I didn't only complain about these things. I did because many of the players that I've represented complained of being shot up at Toradol and given tremendous amounts of Toradol in the locker room. And Paul's shaking his head, yes, not that I'll put him on the witness stand right now, but he probably knows what I'm talking about. 
in NFL lockers. There's a lawsuit right now going after the NFL for basically getting players addicted to all kinds of drugs, opioids and narcotics and things like that. That case got dismissed by the district court judge in California, went to the Ninth Circuit, it got reversed, and is now sent back to Judge Olson. That's not the end of their problems. they got other litigation problems. But that is literally the first win against the NFL on preemption. Corey Stringer and a number of other players lost on preemption and had their cases thrown out. So we'll see what happens. Time for one more. Kelsey? Uh, Kelsey Simtrick on the 2L. Uh, is there anything in the settlement that addresses or provides for the mental health issues that might stem from CTE, like depression? So the, the, indirectly, yes, and, and directly. The directly, again, you, if you arise to the level of not quite in the bucket of dementia or one of the other serious injuries, but there is something going on from a neurocognitive standpoint, and that is, and your dementia. I mean, I'm sorry. And depression is also one of the one of the factors. You can get some treatments. It's called the level one. That's what we call in the summit. There is some treatment that people can get for that. Some counseling and maybe even pharmaceutical help uh, from a from a doctor. Um, indirectly, I say yes because the one thing that so the NFL has a complicated system of benefits. And some of those benefit programs say that if you sue the NFL, you waive your right to, re to re get any of the benefits under the collective bargaining agreement. Now, candidly, that only is for players who have, are vested union members. Not every player has played long enough to become a, a union member. But for players who are union members and have vested rights under the CB, uh, CBA, collective bargaining agreement, there are programs in place to help with those kinds of things. We were able to get the NFL to waive those provisions so that they would get both their collective bargaining benefits and the settlement benefits. And I think there are some things in the collective bargaining agreements that would help with that. But look, I don't want to poo-poo or sweep you know, depression under the rug. It was a big issue with the objectors in this case, that we didn't, you know, they felt that depression should have been compensated. And I'm not putting anybody down for that view. The problem that we had getting the NFL to compensate depression is that one of the number one selling pharmaceuticals in the world are antidepressants. It is a multifactorial problem that really does affect the general population. I mean, if you look at the background rates of people who suffer from depression, clinical depression requiring pharmaceutical help, those numbers are very high, and it's not just NFL players. It's, it's a big problem. And then you throw on top of that the fact that maybe some NFL players have financial problems or drug, drug problems. We just could not get the NFL to the point of compensating those injuries. And we've acknowledged that from day one, and those people had the right to opt out if they wanted to and continue their litigation. But um, yeah, that's kind of how that played out. I saw other hands. We'll, we'll do it quickly. Go ahead. Um, ben, you mentioned you keep saying the NFL is paying these players, right? So how is like the compensation being allocated? Is it all like you know all the owners pulling money together, for example, or yeah. how is the money being allocated? Yeah. So what happens is. Um, there's a certain amount of money that must remain in a bank account that we have. I forget what the number is. It can be no less than you know, $50 million, let's say. I'm not sure exactly what the number is. I'm just throwing that out. As claims are decided and that amount needs to be replenished, there are procedures for requiring them to continue. So as I said, there's over, you know, there's, there's like $560 million in claims that have been approved and already about $350, 360000000 million has been out the door, checks cashed. As those checks go out, they make sure the, the money, they have to fund, you know, the program as it goes in. Now, 
you know, I don't know if they're calling Jerry Jones and saying, write me 130, you know, 1 over 31 of what you owe on this. I don't know what their mechanisms are. All I know is that if they don't put the money in the account, they have a big problem. Really hope you enjoy that from Chris Seeger. I'm going to get to listener questions in a second, but first a word from Simply Safe. I'm a big fan of Simply Safe home security system. It's ready for anything. If a storm takes out your power, it's ready. If an intruder cuts your phone line, it's ready. You destroy your keypad, it's ready. Maybe it's overkill. Maybe you don't need that. But Simply Safe is home security that's always ready. Doesn't cost an arm and a leg. Only charge you what's fair. No contracts, no hidden fees. It's just 24-7 professional monitoring. $14.99 a month. I recommend it to everyone I know. You gotta check it out. So go to simplysafe.com slash brandt, all caps, B-R-A-N-D-T. Simplysafe.com slash brandt. Protect your home and family today. Simplysafe.com slash brandt. Now to the listener question part of the podcast, I'll answer your questions. Just leave them at 484-416-5654. Today's question is from Jim. Andrew, Jim from Cleveland, Ohio. Was enjoy the podcast and was wondering if Le'Veon Bell reports and the Steelers decide to make him inactive, does he still get paid and does that still count uh, towards service time towards his free agency? Thank you much. Good question, Jim. And I've talked a lot about Levy and Bell, how I just don't get it. <laughs> I don't know what he's doing now. He said he's reporting uh, week seven and during a bye week to try to get paid for that. And listen, uh, the bye week and the week after, they could potentially have a roster exemption where he would not get paid. I think it's all part of the deal. The agent and Bell talking to the Steelers. I come in, I get paid. They got to make sure of that before they do, before he signs the tender. So that's not going to be an issue. You're talking about inactive. If he's not on the 46-day, 46-man uh, game day roster, would he still get paid? Absolutely. There are no terms on any kind of franchise tag tender where if you're inactive, you don't get the money. So the tender will be signed. It was 14-5 at the beginning of the year. He's been losing 885,000 a week. He's going to lose over five million dollars. So that'll be under, you know, or around nine million dollars for the last uh, ten weeks of the season or nine weeks of the season compared to what he was going to get, $14.5 million. So, again, I don't understand. I don't believe this theory of reduced usage is going to get him a big contract next year. I think he'll get about the same contract from whoever he gets that he would have gotten if he had 400 touches this year. It's just not going to be a big deal. But, yes, he'll get paid when he comes in. He will not come in without the Steelers agreeing, you're going to get paid from the moment you come in. So he'll get paid for doing nothing during the bye week, and he'll get paid as they go into the rest of the season. Great question, Jim. Again, if you have questions, please leave them for me. I'll answer them on the podcast. 484-416-5654. Hope you enjoyed this special edition of the podcast with Chris Seeger, the lead attorney for the NFL Concussion Settlement, and your fan questions. Uh, finally, a word from Bet Online. It's NFL, it's college, it's the biggest UFC fight of the year. It's all happening. So don't wait any longer. Make your online wagers. Head over to betonline.ag. Take advantage of the best bonuses in the business. Use promo code PODCAST1. Again, all caps, PODCAST1. Receive a 50% sign-up bonus today. All wagers, props for the huge fight coming up, the McGregor fight. It all has you covered. So sign up today for a new account, 50% sign-up bonus. The promo code again, PODCAST1. Don't miss out. NFL, college, the McGregor fight. BetOnline.ag, that's BetOnline.ag, our exclusive partners at Podcast One Sportsnet. 
Thanks for listening. You can always follow me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt. Hear the podcast at Apple Podcasts. Give us a good rating if you would. And Stitcher, tune in, RossTucker.com, wherever you hear your podcasts. Thanks to Brian Neal, my producer, engineer, extraordinaire, recording this. And I'll be back next week with another edition of The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Thanks for listening to The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft Podcast, all at RossTucker.com or wherever podcasts are found.